I became fascinated with looking at things where they fall in a, for lack of a better word, on a timeline. That serious stuff that we just talked about, I'm trying to be comic relief, so I'm going to move away from it right now. We need markers to remember what God has done in our lives. Uh, Here we go. Here we go. I'm glad I'm around somebody to make fun of. (laughs) Because what you see when you begin to look at history is that we're all connected. It's good stuff. This is History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. Featuring Angie Ferris, I'm your host, Frank Rains Jr., along with producer Wes. Thanks for joining us. Hey, welcome again to History Through the Eyes of Faith. Glad you stepped in and jumped in to episode 41. I'm your host, Frank Rains Jr., along with producer Wes, and as always, Angie Ferris. Say hello, Angie. Hello, Angie. Right. Right on cue. And we are happy that you joined us. We're happy that we're going to talk more about uh, the pillars of the beginning of the church. But, you know, we're not going to go right into that because we want to get to know you. We want to know, that sounds a little bit like Biden. Know you. Yeah, back to Scranton. Come on. That's it. Come on. I'm sorry. Just you're looking at me like, why are you doing that? No, just listening. I mean, come on. Um, we want to we want to just uh, chat for a second. Let's chat for a second, Ange. What are we want to talk about? Well, one thing is we didn't go on and on about it being episode forty when we were doing forty. I can't believe we're sitting here at forty-one. I mean, it's like that's pretty amazing. But yeah, fun. Uh, it is, and you know, and I I want to do a better job of um, of promoting the podcast. I haven't done that a lot. Um, yeah, so if you're listening, share it with your friends and neighbors. Do us a favor. Share it with one person today. As Letterman used to say, wake the kids, phone the neighbors, folks. It would be great. When he would announce somebody coming out. Um, and we hope to have some special perks coming for our listeners soon, so keep your ears open perks. for that. You know, I was saying something right before we started this episode that I needed to run an errand later, and I said I was going to go to Dollar General. Mm. And which is a local people know what that is. It's just happened to be the closest thing to me right now. And um, I remembered that my youngest son, he would say doll gentle. So it's D-O-L-L-G-E-N-D-L-E, I guess. Doll gentle. Mm-hmm. So doll gentle. And so now I was it just came to me when I said I gotta go to Dollar General that I need to go to Doll Gentle. Um so that was fun for me. Maybe not anybody else listening. That was fun for me. Um, we're going to have some dinner later. When I get back to my house, you know, not here yeah. in the studio. Yeah. Not good to eat in the studio. Anything that uh, you want to catch up on? Anything? When we did, I did. I ended the last episode, and we don't have to go there right now, but in the last episode, talking about pop culture things because we oh, had I that. I totally forgot my question. We had the article about. Religion and pop culture is what the writer of this newspaper yeah, article. Yes, a uh, podcast. Yeah, combines religion and pop culture, or something, something like, like that. that. And that's really kind of been an accident, but it's really because Frank makes pop culture references because that's just what I think about. Well, and then you can say it's an accident, but at the same time, when I invited you to host, it was because I wanted an element of comedic relief of a different viewpoint or. Mm-hmm. Whatever, and Something we to take in- us off track, and we intentionally decided that we. And I want to say this now. I, I meant to say it. I don't think it, you meant could, to say it at what, forty episodes ago. I have said it more than <laughs> once already, and I like to repeat it. This podcast is for, for anybody. anybody. <laughs> it's for, for anybody, anybody that, that wants, wants to, listen. to listen. I remember you saying that. Yeah, not just Christians. And even here where we're talking about the pillars of the church, I was talking to my husband today when we were getting ready. I was preparing to come down here and do some recording. And I was saying, I want it to be interesting. I think that it can be interesting whether you're a believer or not. It will help you understand history and understand the world around you. And the church has been involved in the shaping of that world whether you're involved in the church or not. Yeah. And it would be important for you to understand that why. Not why that is, and it would help you on a day-to-day basis. 
understanding what's going on. We can make better decisions in our own lives when we're informed with where things came yeah. from and learning how to think critically about what they are and how it came about. And so, yeah, that's what we do. You know, it reminded me t- to share this. I don't know if I've talked about it. Maybe I have on here. Um, sometimes I'm an actor and I got hired a couple of years ago to be on a show. And did I tell you I'm giving a third one? Yeah, you did. Okay, well, it's a show, and I'm pro- I'm going to promote it officially. Okay, right now. Maybe when you're when you're uh, shooting. shooting your next episode, you could ask if they want to sponsor our podcast. Yeah, I, I might. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. Anyway, it's a show called Reconnecting Roots, and it's on PBS. So if you go to PBS and search Reconnecting Roots, you'll find it. I don't know what's I know on YouTube. There's a YouTube channel, Reconnecting Roots YouTube channel. Uh, not the the full episodes aren't out there, but I. It's basically a story. It's, it's, it's not a story. The show is an educational show about how America, the things that we enjoy in America, in our society, in modern day, and connecting it back to the history of those things. Yeah. And, um, for example, transportation, you know, the, the evolution of transportation in America. Uh, it's reconnecting the audience to the roots of the country there you and go. it's somewhat like a patriotic show it's not patriotic in that it's all about oh beautiful it's not all that but it is the history in america not the history of the world right but in america farming agriculture transportation industry doesn't it have some comedic relief in there too yeah and they do little bits and sketches to tell the story, which is one of the episodes that I did, was about religion in America. And I thought that was interesting that I haven't brought it up here. But they talk about the founding fathers making it free to to worship however you want to in America. And I played Samuel Adams as part of Samuel Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and um, Benjamin Franklin writing out these creeds of defining worship in America and making sure it was all inclusive of all religions. Um, but in the episode, the guy that hosts it's a guy named Gabe McCauley. And Gabe talks about, as he sets up the history of religion, he references the Middle Ages. He references European influence. He references, you know, the um, Crusades and things that we'll get to. Oh, it's all going to tie in, together. In this podcast. Yeah. But I was re-watching it because um, uh, this episode that's going to be in season three, I don't know when it will come out, probably next year. I don't know. But um, I was re-watching the season two one about the religion. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's straight up the podcast, all the stuff that he's talking about, the history. Yeah. So I'll tell him about it when I see him again, and and then maybe we can do some social media sharing of of that. But anyway, I don't know why. Maybe I have told it before, but I was Teddy Roosevelt talking about state parks, and I was Samuel Adams talking about um, religion. And this one, I may be, I think I'm going to be Herbert Hoover, but the episode is about bourbon. Cool. And I'm going to play a a bartender at some point, which I know nothing about that. I mean, Mm. it's going to be really hard to figure that role out. I'm going to have to dig deep on that. <laughs> All right. What, what, what we, let's start with the gift. I mean, we're only, let's do that. It's not a gift. It's just a paper bag. It's the mystery bag. Mystery bag. Well, we need, we need some theme music for oh, mystery yeah. bag. Oh, yeah. Wes, you come up with a mystery bag theme mystery song. Mystery bag. A mystery bag. Now it's time for a mystery, mystery bag. bag. <laughs> that's it. And that's it. And there it is. And today we have a paper bag that a, looks like a lunch bag. A simple little brown paper bag. Yep. And are you going to demonstrate? Are you, and you this think? gift is for everybody in this room. Oh, so we're going to eat it. Oh, you think it's food. <laughs> well, it's for everybody in this room. I typically like to feel the outside. Squish it. I guess we are eating it. <laughs> And I reach in. That gosh, Wes, you're good on that sound effects music. Play a little bit more. Okay, stop. That's good. It's cookies. That's how they say it down here in the South. Cookies. It's cookies from the grilled cheesery. So I'm gonna guess that today you went to lunch at Hudson. What's it called? 
uh, Houston. Hudson. Yeah, and it, is it Hudson. Hudson Station? Hudson Station. Yeah, it's not Hudson. It's not Hudson. It's because it used to be called something automotive. Yeah. And they used the same place. And I've only said it like so many times today. In East Nashville. Yeah, one of them was broken, but they're chocolate chip, triple chocolate chip cookies from the Grilled Cheesery. Little shout out to the Grilled Cheesery. It's Hunter's Station. Hunter's Station. It was Hunter's Automotive. If you're a Nashvilleian, Hunter's Automotive was a staple in East Nashville for custom automotive work. What you want the you want it now? Mm-hmm. I'm gonna throw it. Oh, it's gone. So yeah, Hudson Automotive. They sold their building and they've renovated it into like a food court. So you can go there and have a lot of options for lunch. And it's a neat little place. The grilled cheesery is one of them. They've got Mexican food. They've got all kinds uh, of stuff. Yeah, bar. They've got Vui's, uh Vietnamese love it. Uh, Milkshake. Hugh babies. Yeah, Hugh milkshakes babies. are at the grilled cheesery. Okay. So, Hudson Station, shout out. It's not Hudson. Hunters. Hunters. It's Hunters. It's Hunters Station. It's Hunters Station. Y'all go down to Hunters Station. Take your your artillery. (laughs) Take your artillery. Oh, Hunter. Hunter, I got it. got it. Connection. Yep. Don't really take your artillery. They won't let you in there with that I thought that was a standard Southern thing. Take your guns. (laughs) Which, going back to pop culture, and then we're going to get right into episode 41. I mentioned I like Steve Martin. I mentioned I like Elvis. There's a story when Steve Martin met Elvis backstage when Steve Martin was opening for Anne Margaret in Vegas. Elvis came to the show and came backstage and said to Steve Martin, Son, you got an oblique sense of humor. And then they had a conversation. Uh, it, oblique? Oblique sense of humor, which means odd, offbeat, which funny that Elvis knew that word. And that it <laughs> I was actually, about to say. And then actually applied to his humor. And Steve Martin told this show recently on a Howard Stern interview. It's also in his autobiography. But then Elvis says to Steve Martin, you want to see my guns? And pulls three guns off of his body. Oh, my gosh. And hands them, but drops the bullets out and hands the guns to Steve. Can you imagine you're seeing Elvis Presley and Steve Martin and Elvis handing him his guns. And he said, after he takes the bullets out. After he takes the bullets out. Because he had loaded guns yeah, on him. On him. Three. And Steve Martin said in this interview, so I'm standing there holding three guns and Elvis is holding 18 bullets. <laughs> <laughs> you want to see my guns? Uh, I love so much about that story. It's real. That's cool. All right. So um, here we are. Episode 41. And I, I'm going to be pretty good at summarizing where we were in 40. Oh, which, you are? Well, I think we talked about how what was the structure of the first church, and you had discovered a book uh, by Tony? Mark. Mark. Tony, Mark Knoll. Mark. <laughs> Tony, same thing. Mark Knoll uh, that has, it was called Turning Points. That's where I got the Tony because of the T. <laughs> could have been Thomas, could have been Ted. Went with Tony. Um, Mark Knowles, Timothy, Turning Points, and he, had de- he developed markers or at least categories uh, of how the first church was kind of organized. And one of them was canon. One of them was, I can't say it. Episcopacy. Episcopacy. <laughs> you laid into that a little bit too much. <laughs> Episcopacy. Episcopacy <laughs> was how she said it before that time she said Episcopus, because I don't can't say whatever. And the third one was, uh, oh, what's the third one? Creed. Creed, because the office. Isn't um, that a rock band, Creed? It was, yeah. Yeah. And Creed from the office was actually in a rock band, too, mm. which is weird. And, and just to edit what you're saying just a little bit. You look at early church history and you think, how did they organize? And so these are three categories to help take all of those things that happened and make them Being easy, able to understand. easier to explain. Explain. And we'd gotten through canon. Which is what? What is canon? Canon is, I'm going to describe it not as good as you did first, but it's like a reference point. It's basically the measurement Standard. The standard that we're going to go back to and measure this against. 
like if I said, hey, I really think it might be okay for us to kill people. No, let's go back to the canon. And, and if I said, and say, as a Christian, I was reading the canon, what am I talking about? The Bible at yeah. the time. Yeah. Now, and in this in particular, we're talking about the New Testament Bible, because obviously the Old Testament Bible was already set. I didn't know that. That's my next question. Well, the Old Testament was already set? Well, yeah, that's what... Well, that's because of... Yeah, they, that's they, what they, Jesus they, is quoting in the whole mm-hmm. thing. I mean, the, and the Jews did that. I get a pat. I get a F for that. The Jews did that. that. You know, that was done. And Yeah. Wow. So they were done at that point. Yeah. But at some point we're going to talk about, because we talked about this in episode 39, at some point you're going to, when we get to history, when they say, okay, this is the Bible... I think we just got there. We just—that's what we just said. Okay. Well, we're not going to get to because you said for me to remind you in episode thirty-nine, and you said sometime between the next two to ten episodes. It was one. <laughs> it was just right there staring at us. How did like the Book of Enoch? So I went back and looked at the Book of Enoch to figure out what that was. Okay. First of all, do you remember what the Apocrypha is? We talked about the Apocrypha at the same time that we talked about the. Ooh. <laughs> I lost the word. It. I lost the word. Septuagint. Thank you. Septuagint. Oh my gosh! How did I do that? I don't know. That was amazing. That was so amazing. Anyway, so the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was requested by one of Alexander's generals, the Ptolemies, that were in Egypt after the death of Alexander. He invited Jews to Alexandria to translate the Torah, the Old Testament, into Greek, and that was called the Septuagint. Well, there was these other books that dealt with things that happened between, mostly between the Testaments that got attached to the Septuagint called the Apocrypha. Just rip it open. I'm sorry. I'm trying to be quiet. It's like somebody trying to open candy in church. I know, but it's all right. Just go ahead. This is the yummy triple chocolate chip cookies. Well, I can't just keep going. So... I'm just going to let him just get the cookie out before we it's falling apart. Yeah, I just, okay, I'm ready. Okay, so these writings got attached to the Septuagint, and they were called the Apocrypha, and they dealt with mostly things that happened in between the Testaments, okay? And then when we get another thousand years down the road, we're going to talk about the Apocrypha some more. The Book of Enoch was not in that collection. I went back and checked that. The Book of Enoch, they think it dates back to the second century, a little bit later or right about the time that we're talking about now. But when it became really popular, let's see if I can find this little reference here. I mean, it was written in the second century? They think so. Uh, Probably written in the late second century. No, BCE, before the Common Era. Probably written in the late second century, before the common so era. So two hundred years around Cleopatra, Egypt, and all that stuff. Yeah, even earlier. Yeah, um, but Alexander the Great. Yeah, I think I've lost my little reference where I read this. I'm looking, not finding it. But there was a dude in the 18th century, maybe the 19th, who I think it was in the 18th century. Who went, who came 18th back. 18th century. Yes, who came back from the Middle East and had. Like 18, like 1700s? Yes, and had this copy of the Book of Enoch that was the most complete copy, and then it became popular and known about more. So I say that to say they think it dates back to that time period, but it was not like around. It wasn't popular it wasn't back in like 300, to. 400, 500, 600, whatever. It was, it existed. But part of its popularity and the reason you would hear about it today is coming from the last 200 years, okay? Gotcha. But it's what they call, and it's apocryphal writing, it's outside of the standard, mm-hmm. okay? There's lots of those books. There's the ones that are actually in the Apocrypha, but then there's also other ones that aren't in the Apocrypha that date back to ancient time period, let's say around the 1st and 2nd century B.C., or not B.C., A.D., that are about maybe the life of Jesus, maybe about the early church, maybe about whatever, but they didn't make the canon. 
And based on what we talked about last time, why would they have not made the canon? Because it didn't reference or was naturally met or approved by an apostle. Or written by, associated with. It wasn't associated with an apostle. Yeah. So that doesn't mean that it's not, doesn't teach the same thing as scripture, just like we were talking about books that are written today. It just means it doesn't carry the authority of canon. Right. It might or might not be heresy. You would have to compare it with the canon to see. Right. Well, the book of Enoch then, is it, does it take place around, it was written around 200? uh, What I read said that they think it dates back to the second century BC, but I don't know the stories. But I think the, I don't know either, but what I peripherally have read is that it's talking about a time period. It might have been written around 200 BC, but it's referring to a time period several hundred years before that or thousands of years before that. Oh, really? I think so. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because Enoch, that's right. Enoch was back in the early line of Noah. Yes. So it's going back to that time period, and that's why it's called the Book of Enoch. But we don't know that it really came from Enoch, but that's why it's called that. Okay. Okay. All right. Homework. there, that gave you some context for those extra biblical writings. Yeah. That are in that period and they're not included in, in the canon. In the canon, which is a good segue into talking about wrapping up the canon right. category. Right. So the to, canon was the first of the three that help us organize those. Because what we're looking at is how does this church, these followers of Jesus, become an organized structure? And we talked about how they needed authoritative teachings they needed you know prayers and devotions and creeds and um they needed to be able to discern what was consistent with jesus teachings and wasn't wasn't and those kind of things so putting together this authoritative books this group of books this letters whatever you want to call them that was done they were circulating as a unit i think we said by the end of the second century right Mm mm-hmm Okay, so now the next element of that, pillar is the word you were using, is episcopacy. And that word means leadership. It's actually a translation, a similar translation would be the word bishop. Okay. I got you. So like the leadership of the the organization. Episcopacy is defined as the rise of bishops as the key agents for organizing the church. Okay, and and I connect it to the word Episcopalian or the Episcopal Church. Which is coming from the same place, yeah. which has to yeah. do with yeah. bishops' leadership. The interpretive difficulty with respect to the early history of the Episcopate which is the leaders of the church. Mm-hmm. So the difficulty we have in interpreting the early history of the leadership of the church is that the forms of church order in the New Testament are quite flexible. Or the other way to say that is the New Testament does not outline a clear structure for the church. So part of the reason we have trouble interpreting the early history of leadership in the church is that a clear order is not spelled out in the New Testament. Right. A clear order meaning a clear organization. A clear order of leadership. Who's going to be the leader? Okay. So here's um, the structure that is in the New Testament is mentioned. And here's the, the different terms for leaders some form of leadership that are used in the New Testament. There's the overseer or bishop. Overseer and bishop get translated. The same Greek word. I've got a list here of the Greek words, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce them. The same Greek words, which the Greek words is, I will say it about this, episkopos is the Greek word. So that's where the word episcopacy comes from. That gets translated into English as overseer or bishop. Another word gets translated as to shepherd or pastor. Another word gets translated as elder or presbyter. And then another one is servant, minister, or deacon. Servant, minister, or deacon. So in the New Testament, you will hear, and it's true to say, we we hear about bishops, pastors, elders, and deacons. 
And then I have scripture references here where each of those are talked about. And they're not all in the same place. So you can go through, and, and they're all in either Acts or the letters. Okay? So this is not Jesus talking about them. It's either Paul, um, Peter, Luke in writing Acts. Or, um, yeah, that's it. That would be the, because it's in Thessalonians and Timothy and Philippians and Ephesians and Acts and Titus and First uh, Peter. Okay, so in their conversation, they refer to, I'm just making this up, something like consult with the elders or the church is made up of servants and teachers. And so, but exactly what role they played. And like, mm -hmm. I know they're one place where it defines what a, an elder should be, what the qualifications for elder should be, like the husband of only one wife and faithful to that wife and no problems at home and that kind of, you know, so there are some outlines given there. They're not left totally in the dark, but there's not a clear structure. Like there's going to be this many elders and then the elder will report to the bishop and the deacon will report to the elder. Or that kind of stuff is, is not lined out. But it's, but so we know that at the time of the New Testament, there was some kind of structure, but it was very flexible and it's not spelled yeah, out. Yeah, okay? okay. So the time of the New Testament, we saw roughly, let's say, was between 50 and 100. Could have been as like we were talking about if everything's written before the fall of Jerusalem, it could have been 50 to 70. Well, only half a century later, just 50 years later, a fairly well-defined rule of the church by bishops is firmly in place. Hmm. Yeah. So you're going to explain how that happened? Well, we don't know how that happened. We just know that in the writings, by the time 50 years have gone, it, we can see back to that early. It says by the mid-60s mid or slightly later, the church organized under bishops, deacons, presiding officers, and elders. So we have writings from church fathers and other things where you can see that that has happened, but it's not spelled out how it happened. We just know when it was done. Okay. Okay. So the emergence, the emergence of a hierarchical administration centered on the bishops can be observed in the words of three prominent early church fathers. When we were talking about the book of Revelation, or I don't know if it was Revelation or some other thing, but at some point when we were talking the last few episodes, we said that you would use internal sources and external sources mm -hmm. for helping to date something. So the internal sources would be those scripture references that I just said, that, that was clear there was such a thing as a bishop and an elder and a deacon and a, and a um, pastor. But... The external sources then are these early church fathers. So these would be ones who came after. They weren't apostles, but they were right after the apostles. And they wrote prolifically about the church and are looked up to as fathers. And so there's three sources that Mark Knoll quotes here. Ignatius was an early church father and in, in 112 AD. And he wrote, "'Follow the bishop as Jesus Christ followed the father.'" Follow the presbyterial elders as the apostles and respect the deacons as the commandment of God. Wow. So there he is talking about the structure. Follow the so it's clear that bishop is over the presbytery or the elders and then respect the deacons as the commandment of God. So Ignatius? Ignatius. Is this where he's in Rome? Where is he? I'm, I don't have that written down right here. Okay. <laughs> somewhere in the church. Okay. And I'm sure I have it written down somewhere else, but we're talking in 112. Okay. Then Bishop Arrhenius of Leons, or Lyons, however you pronounce that. So that is a place, giving us a place. In 185, he says, The bishops guarded the handling on, on of Christian traditions from the apostles and argued that an unbroken succession of of presiding bishops in the various churches guaranteed the continuation of apostolic authority in the church. So here's what he's saying. I'm translating that. Arrhenius was very intent and took special pains to trace the handing on of authority from bishop to bishop in what became the Church of Rome or the Church of the Roman Empire. So what that would mean is, I'm pretty sure, 
don't quote me on this, but let's just say, let's say that um, Paul founded the church at Ephesus. Okay. I don't think he did, but let's say he did. Let's just, let's just take a place. So Paul founds the church at Ephesus. Paul's considered an apostle. So Irenaeus would write down Paul, and then he would write the bishop that took over when Paul left, and then the bishop that took over when that guy was gone, and then the bishop, and he was here in 185, meticulously showing the chain of apostolic leadership from Jesus to his time period mm-hmm. because of this need for authority. Okay. Gotcha. Now, we don't know how you became a bishop, how the bishop was chosen, what that exactly meant, but we know that we have this handing off of authority. Yeah. All the way down through there. And then a, a lifetime later, Cyprian of Carthage, which was. He died in 259, okay? So he's saying it's the next generation because Arrhenius was in 185. So Cyprian of Carthage referred to the full establishment of an Episcopal system in the church. So by then, you feel like it's fully established. Yeah. That order is established. And we know some about what that order is because to some degree, it's still around now. Or you can trace records back to see. But how it went from the New Testament to that... We don't really know. We don't know the play-by-play. That's the way to put it. But it's only like 20 years. Right. And it's interesting how it happened pretty quick. But as Mark Knowles explaining to us, it needed to happen pretty quick. Right? Yeah. Um, Historians agree that order in the early church grew from Jewish roots, where, for example, synagogues had functioned under elders or presidents. So that you had referenced that before that the synagogues probably set a model. So they had elders or presidents. So there was probably a recognition right from the beginning for elders and went and really they were part of the synagogue when they first started. But mm. you know then after the fall of Rome we fall of Jerusalem. I'm sorry. The fall of Jerusalem. Thank you for correcting that. We they got to get their own gig, right? Because there's no longer a temple and there's no longer right. that structure. Um what's interesting to me and I haven't thought of this I don't know why until now, but when you say the word bishop, I think of the Catholic Church. And at some point we're going to get to a yes. Catholic a Catholicism. Right. And that's probably several hundred years from where we are right now. Not really. A few. A few hundred. Get Not really, though. Because, well, I'll just say this as a teaser for that. The church, what became the Catholic Church is the church that we're talking about right now. Okay. Okay. So it just wasn't called the Catholic Church. You know what the word Catholic oh, means? Obviously, that's correct. I would have already thought of that. Um, the, you know what the word Catholic means? Universal. I, okay. Universal. So the it was the universal church. It was all of the church. Yeah. I'm sorry again. Frank's showing up, exposing his lack no, of knowledge. I don't think so because I've, you know, had this discussion with people before and a lot of people don't realize that. And most of those people were fourth, fifth graders. So. No, they weren't. They were adults. Um so all every all historians are agreed that the Episcopal organization of the church represented a striking move beyond Judaism. See, Judaism didn't have like a a, a lead. Well, I can't speak to it because I'm not Jewish and I can't go back. But we, we did... We did, need to get a Jewish guest. Yeah, we did talk about uh, how, you know, like the Sanhedrin, there were councils and those kind of things. There were groups of people and they did have a high priest. So there was a little bit of that going on. Um, yeah. And But you're following the model of Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church, and then he gathered and appointed 12 apostles and commissioned them to go. And so then, then the authority then can be chained back to them. Yeah. To the, to the way that that works. But, you know, we also have bishops in the Methodist church. You remember that? Yeah. 
So you'll hear. Oh, that. I'm sure there's other denominations that have bishops. Yeah. Does it, Nazarene it, have it? I don't know. I don't know all the. I'm I'm sure your more liturgical ones like the Episcopal, Presbyterian, and the pres and probably I don't know about the Presbyterian, but the words look at that word Presbyterian and presbyter. Yeah. Which I, means elder. Okay. I picked up on that. You're going to get elders, deacons, bishops. Those are words you're going to hear in almost every. Uh, Christian denomination. What do you think about Not deacon really. as a name of a person? Well, it means a servant, so I guess that's... Okay. Yeah, you can name people whatever you want to, right? <laughs> okay, now, let me talk just a minute about... It was interesting, because my very next note was about Roman Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox, okay, and the reason I'm bringing this up here is we're not going to try to explain this here because it becomes an integral part of history. Like, we're going to talk about it at length as we move forward into history. But Mark Knoll is writing this book to Christians. He's not writing just to Catholics or just to Protestants or just to Orthodox Christians. Those are the three major groups. So it's just a moment to say a little bit about that. The, the Catholic Church is the part of the church that stays in Rome when the church begins to split, which is further down in history we'll talk about. The Orthodox Church is the part of the church that settles in, that, that arrive, uh, can't even find the right verb without telling the story, but it's in the East, okay, what we we're calling the East. And then the Protestant Church doesn't come around no. until the 16th century. Right. Okay. That'd be a person named Martin Luther. For those one of, of those people. Okay, yeah, whatever. one of the people. Gosh, I was trying to act smart. Yeah. Anyway, they have different views of of church leadership that ties into their different beliefs about orthodoxy and uh, that kind of stuff. Okay? So that's going to be reflected in the way you talk about church leadership. So as we go forward, we're going to come across him making comments about Orthodox this or Catholic that. And I just want to say it's because today we're dealing with these different approaches. At that time, there weren't those different approaches. Yet. Right, there was right. there was uh, one, one church, and not that there's more than one church now, but there was only one church structure. That's the way right. to put that. Okay. Um, to Roman Catholics and to some sense... In some sense, for the Orthodox, the bishops needed to rise since they were the designated successors of the apostles charged with carrying on the apostolic work of testifying to Christ and organizing lives of service to him. Okay, so those churches lift up the bishop and see a clear line down from the apostles and have this authority. Protestants, by contrast, tend to look upon the episcopacy that emerged by the mid-2nd century as a natural response to circumstances. So, see, I've even described this like a Protestant would, like they needed a leader, okay? okay. Whereas a Catholic would describe it like Jesus told him, chose him, and he chose him, and he chose him, and he chose him, so he is directly related back to Jesus. But okay. I was talking about it like a Protestant, well, you got to have a leader, and how are you going to figure out who that leader is? Right. Okay. A Protestant, let's see, um, a Protestant interpretation might begin by suggesting that the James, who presided over the activities of the Jerusalem church in the book of Acts, was se selected out of a pragmatic necessity, but that he did not confuse his own role with the more basic reality of the apostolic message of Christ in his work. Okay, so his role was out of necessity. That's the way a Protestant like would look at it. administration. Yeah, not, or, or leadership, spiritual direction, not because uh, God gave me an apostolic message. I see. Okay. Similarly, the bishops should be regarded as no more than elders with added functional responsibilities, which is the way they are in the Methodist Church. It is strictly a added responsibility role. Okay, and the Methodist is a Protestant denomination. Bishops, like all believers, could be regarded as apostolic when and if they upheld the message of the apostles about the salvation found in Christ, but they should not otherwise be considered uniquely apostolic in their ordination or in the exercises of their office, which is different than the way the Catholic or my understanding of the Orthodox see it. 
Okay. The basic difference of interpretation once again returns to the question of apostolicity. Protestants ground apostolicity in the message of the New Testament. Catholics expand apostolicity to include the coordination between the New Testament writings and the activity of bishops. So they're given more weight to the activity of the person. Well, um, I don't want to hijack what you're saying, but you're talking about Catholics and Protestants, but that's we got another 1,200 years before To we understand get... how they became Catholics and Protestants, yes. But what Mark Knoll is saying is the way we look at it today is influenced by whether we're Catholic or Protestant. And I think that's important to point out as okay. we're looking at Because like I said, I gave a Protestant description. I could have said the bishops arose because Jesus chose these 12 men and then each of them was led by God to choose the person that would take over that role. And that person was, that gives more authority to the person. Whereas as a Protestant, I'm giving more authority to the text and seeing the role of the person as a functional role. Right. I get it. Okay. I just want to make sure that overarching, we're talking about history, we're talking about the beginning of the church and how it's structured, and we're into the leadership of the church. And you're just defining how we're explaining it because of how we're seeing it today versus how a, a Catholic could see it today or Catholics saw it at the time. Yeah, you would, you, they would, we'd look at history differently right? based on our experience now. But in both cases, the bishops are regarded as key figures for dealing with heresy, what's, what's accurate and what's inaccurate, providing teaching, overseeing the baptism of new converts and providing standards for worship. So that was their role, whether they got there because chosen by an apostle who was chosen, who was chosen, who was chosen, or just a role out of necessity that was consistent with mm-hmm. the scriptures. Yeah. But they still had the job of, let's go over it again, dealing with heresy, with what are true teachings, pro- providing teaching, letting teaching the truth, overseeing the baptism of new converts, and providing standards for worship. With their respective views of the church, so here's another difference. Catholics have more confidence that the early bishops got it exactly right, while Protestant note errors or the potential for errors that would one day need to be corrected by a reformation. So there's the difference, see. Say that again. With the, respect, with the different views of the church, Catholics have more confidence that the early bishops got it exactly right. I see. While Protestants note errors or the potential for errors that would one day need to be corrected by a reformation. Precise assessment of what the rise of the episcopacy meant for the church thus remains in dispute. So you could dispute about what the arise of leaders meant because if the leaders are capable of making errors, then we can look back now and say, okay, well, this was not a right choice at this point in history. This choice would have been more consistent with the scriptures, but, but that's because we're raising the scriptures up. Whereas you or you could look back and say, that's what they chose. He was doing what God asked him to do. So that's what we go with. Right. Okay. Right, Right. What is not disputed is that the system of bishops that arose in the early church became the means for moderating its internal life and organizing its response to the world. So it was this system of leadership that became the means for moderating the internal life of the church and organizing its response to the world. As such, the episcopacy was one of the vehicles through which the patterns of the synagogue were exchanged for the church's own method of organization. Martinal. Yes. And so the so that's I like him calling it a vehicle. So if you look at the canon as a vehicle for for identifying truth and teaching truth, and the episcopacy as a vehicle for establishing leadership and and a pattern of what the church's own method of organization would be. Mm -hmm. And then the next one we'll go into is creeds, which is beliefs. So anything else to say on episcopacy or questions or thoughts? No, I think (laughs) my thought is when you first said it, you know, I connected to the word Episcopal and I didn't make kind of the connection of what it could mean. I didn't try to think about what it could mean. But now that I know 
what it means. It's a very practical, uh, a very practical component to what you would need to have. Right. I mean, you have your reference, which is the canon, and then your leadership, and then now your beliefs. Yeah. Which I'm assuming the creed would then fall into what the canon says. Yes. So the third decisive means that stabilized the church was the development of short statements of belief, summarizing Christian teaching and introducing inquirers to the faith. Would one of those be the Apostles' Creed? Yes. I believe in God the Father. Yeah, just hold it for a minute. No, you, I can't impress people that I know the Apostles' Creed. Yes, but Creed. just in a minute. Let's I mean, talk I mean, about I mean, it for a minute. Right. I mean, okay? I get it right. So I might impress and producer Wes. This is interesting to me. Okay. Because you've got the whole canon, right? Mm -hmm. But we need some short statements of belief that summarize that. Why do you need those? Well, first they need them for baptism. The early creeds were baptismal. They were formulated first as a way for organizing teachers for new converts. Isn't that interesting? So rather than saying First of all, did they even have copies of the scriptures, right? So how do we teach you the basic beliefs quickly? Memorize this creed. It's a statement of faith. Right. And so it's something that new converts learn. But soon they came to serve other purposes as well, especially for marking out boundaries between genuine belief and its heretical imitations. Yeah. Okay. In the sub-apostolic church the age immediately following that of the apostles, the baptismal creeds were held in high regard as standing for apostolic teaching and so preserving the message of Christ. So here's a summary of the apostolic teaching in this creed. Okay. And it's going to preserve the message of Christ. And so we're learning these creeds. creeds. Yeah. Isn't that cool? It makes sense. It's um, kind of like the Pledge of Allegiance. Yes. The definitive version of the Apostles' Creed in its final form was not recorded until the 7th century. So the, the Apostles' Creed as we know it today was not definitively recorded in that final form until sometime in the 600s. But early versions of what is often called the Old Roman Creed, which closely resembles the Apostles' Creed, have been traced back to the second century. So when when we're saying the Apostles' Creed or singing the Apostles' Creed, it goes all the way back to the new church. Wow. I, didn't, that, I didn't know that. Isn't that really cool? It is. Um, so let's talk, before you quote it, let's talk about what is it, why do you know it, or why would somebody not know it? Where have you heard of it? I would say a lot of people don't know it. Right. So how come you would happen to know it? I know it. I don't happen to know it. I will tell you exactly how I know it. I grew up in the United Methodist Church. And part of the practice on Sunday morning in the service was to, in unison, as a congregation, read the Apostles' Creed off of a piece of paper. It printed in a book. Out of the hymnal. Out of the hymnal. And now it would be on a projector on the wall if you did it today, or you might do a version of it. Um but I read it so many times as a kid growing up in the Methodist yeah, church. Yeah, most kids in church every week knew that by the time they were I didn't practice it. Ten. Yeah. I just now know it. Right. And it's interesting. One of the churches that we visit when we're traveling regularly, when their pastor stands up. That sounds so pretentious. As we're traveling regularly. Just, I'm sorry you know. it sounds pretentious. It was just I, funny I didn't to me. I was trying to jab a little comedy in there. Okay. But one, what I think it's really cool what this pastor does. When it's time for the Apostles' Creed, he says, And now, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and Almighty. earth. Almighty. God the Father, Almighty. Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Who was born conceived? Of, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and on the third day he arose from the dead and descended into heaven and sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from yes. whence he will come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe. I believe in the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. 
the Holy Catholic Church, and the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Everlasting. Amen. Amen. How about that, Wes? <laughs> yeah. So, if you I didn't listen, get it exactly right, but hey, I was good. Yeah, good. you were good. So, it's going to be really cool if you know the Apostles' Creed. Then I encourage you, listeners, as we go through the next episodes. I don't know many episodes when we start talking about the belief systems to think back through that creed because you can clearly see why those parts were added. Yeah, based that's on what I was they, forgetting some of them, uh-huh. and now I'm like, oh, they added that and they added that. Well, they didn't add it. I forgot it, but here's why it's in there. But I'm going to polish that up. I'd like to be able to not have any help. Right. Well, and and I have found from from discussing this content with a lot of different people that most of my friends don't know the Apostle Creed because they haven't been in congregations that cited it. Now, this is just some trivia. Why would you think it would be that they would that congregations wouldn't be reciting that? Why would they not be reciting mm-hmm. it? Well, my my simple answer to that is, I mean, because I've I've attended lots of different churches, and I haven't attended regularly in a while, but I have attended a lot of churches. I think the church that you attend does the creed. Right in one form or in another. one form, not in that form that we just did it, but um, but in the churches that I have visited, mostly over the last fifteen years or so, it became very con- the church was very contemporary. It was a very uh, uh, trying to be consistent with the culture. I think like if you're if you're a Netflix person or you're 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 into today's culture. People in in live theater, they talk about their audience was a TV audience or a movie audience. You know, you're used to doing other things while the show is on TV, so you're not really engaged. So when you go see live theater, you don't know really how to act because there's a person right there doing the lines in front of you, and you're not able to pause it or anything. So I think the church became more wanting to be comfortable for people to be consistent with their lives. This is just my maybe wrong opinion. But there wasn't a lot of participation. It wasn't like hmm. we're going to get you to commit to something, to read this, to sign this, and you're going to re- recite these so things. Would the words "loosey goosey" be kind of? That's a, to me. That's a little extreme. Not okay. loosey goosey, but we want it to be all we don't inclusive, want it to be welcoming. We don't want there to be any work involved. Yeah, we want well, you to okay. be a, a spectator. And I think that's a legitimate. Possibility. I think another possibility for me, the, the way I would answer that question, is that repeating something over and over seems too rote, doesn't seem like it's coming from the heart, seems like it's just, I don't even know what I'm saying anymore because I just say the same thing all the time. And so I think as denominations sprung up or new ways to worship or new twists on worship came, it's like, we're going to leave that out because it's just too... It's too much. Standardized, too. It's not personal. Okay? But what's interesting to me now, when I read it and say it, it is so personal. It is so personal. And every little piece of it is important. But anyway, Mm -hmm. this is I I encourage you to look up the Apostles' Creed and particularly, like, maybe listen to two or three more episodes and then go back and look at it again, and you're going to hear even more in there. But... I want to share with you. So you, so we quoted the Apostles' Creed. You quoted it. I qu- quoted it. This is what the old Roman Creed said. So just to remind you, the old Roman Creed we know, has been traced back to the second century, to the really early church. And it says, I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Christ Jesus, His only Son, our Lord, who was born from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who under Pontius Pilate was crucified and buried, on the third day rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead, and in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the flesh, and life everlasting, which is very similar. Mm -hmm. Very similar. And that dates all the way back to just after the apostles, which I think is pretty cool. So now when we quote or sing the Apostles' Creed, it's like, wow, we're doing something that Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. 
Yeah. And what was true then is still true now. Yeah. And those statements, it's pretty amazing. So these early versions were used to prepare converts for baptism. They were first a way to teach about the Trinitarian faith, because if you we heard in there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Trinitarian faith, the yeah. Trinity. And then for those joining the church, a way to express this faith as their own. So just like the pastor says, Christian, what do you believe? And then they have a response to yeah, that. Yeah. Okay. Teaching aids prepared for the church's educational purposes came to be important also for ordinary worship and for fending off heresy. So it directed your worship and it helped you discern what was heresy and what wasn't. Repetition of the creed became habitual in liturgies precisely because it reminded believers of the bedrock realities that had first been experienced by the apostles and then passed along. I'm going to read that sentence again. Repetition of the creed became habitual in liturgies, which liturgies are the rhythm of worship, okay, the process of worship, precisely because it reminded believers of the bedrock realities that had first been experienced by the apostles and then passed along. The use of creed to guard the church's teaching soon became almost as important as their use for new and old believers in the church. Now think about that. So now it's becoming just as important to guard the teachings of the church. What we teach is truth. Looking at the, the form of words in the Apostles' Creed as an example, almost every phrase can be seen to protect the church against heretical teaching. So you can go through each phrase after you've looked at the history of the church and see when that heresy came in yeah. that that phrase speaks against. I see, yeah. And, and we'll see that as we move forward in church history and talk about some of the different issues that come up. The early baptismal creeds, along with the creeds that followed, functioned as apostolic summaries of the Christian faith. I like that definition. Apostolic summaries of the Christian faith. Yeah, well, I like it. And, I mean, it's it's neat that it's coming up in the timing now of this episode and, and where we are in, in the podcast content because now it kind of makes sense of why we say it and why I said it growing up and how it became, yeah. excuse me, a foundation. Yeah. Um, but I don't know how much more we have on Just a little creed. bit. Just, I'm just almost assuming a summary statement. Um, so we can look at these creeds as taking the broader teachings of Scripture and then guiding the actor, outward practices of the church. Taking the broader teachings of Scripture and guiding the outward practices of the church, along with the foundational message of the New Testament and the work of the bishops, they allowed the church to know its own mind. Yeah. I like that phrase. So the foundational uh, message of the New Testament, the work of the bishops or the leadership structure, and then the creeds allowed the church to know its own mind. Canon, Episcopacy, and Creed were the vehicles the Christian church traveled on as it began its journey outward from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Mark Noel, because that's a very good way to it is. It is. To and divide so, it up. And so where we'll go from here is we will start, then we will we'll talk about what the church runs up against and what life for Christians was like in those first couple hundred years. Okay. That's 41 episodes. That's pretty crazy. And we're kind of kicking it off. We've got just a couple more minutes, and I'd asked you a question. Yeah, what do was you that remember? question? Do you remember? I do vaguely At the remember. the end of episode 40. Yes, I, I know like, what you're talking about. I just can't remember exactly how it was worded. It was not, it was, I don't know how it was worded, but just we talked about combining pop culture, and I was just things that I talk about that I connect with on the episode that I come to mind, and I was looking around the studio, and I was just thinking about sharing with the audience, with the listener, um, things that I like and things that kind of get me interested. And I wanted to know what they were for you. Um, yesterday we went to Barnes & Noble. I love bookstores. I love what? books. You went to where? Barnes & Noble. Did you say Noble? I don't know what I said. <laughs> I don't know what I said. You went to Barnes & Noble and you like books. I do. I like looking at... I could... I. Just wish I had time to read them all. Really? Yeah, and I, I wish that's one of my goals for this year. I want to read more because I've just I'm busy doing things and I don't stop and really read. But I love what reading. Kind and, of books. 
Well, history is the biggest thing. Oh, I got a I'm good book for you. I'm just always amazed at, I'm just amazed at stories. When I was a kid, I loved biographies. I would go and just read all these biographies on people, and then I would do deep dives into different topics, but history topics. Like, I, I don't know if you remember this. Do you remember that we used to go to Callaway Gardens in Georgia? Which yes, is, which I is, have a story about that. Well, which is right beside Franklin Roosevelt's little White House, which was his home away from home. It's actually where he was when he died. And I remember hmm. going there on more than one occasion as a little girl. I don't know if it was my idea to go or my mom's idea to take me, but I just love that stuff. And so now the other thing I love is traveling. And that's why I love traveling. It's like I want to get into what happened here. And when did it happen? And what does it have to do with something that I already know? And what's going on with this? Anyway, I just love it. Sarah and I were in Key West a few years ago. And um, yeah, there's uh, it's Truman's. Truman's White, White House. His White House away from home is in Key West. And that was really cool going through there. But anyway, we do that. We've been to Theodore Roosevelt has a state park in the eastern part of the western part of is it South Dakota? Wyoming? Anyway, whatever the one is right before you go into Montana. Okay. And that was a really co- – I mean – I know. I I've just, been in your little library at your house. So you've got a couple, but in kind of your main library, you've got lots of presidents, lots of presidents, biographies and stuff. Yeah. I, I just love Which I just, history just and traveling. Which un- I uncovered on my phone the other day. I don't know why I had this, but I had a list of U.S. presidents. And I went back and filled in the whole list, so I have the whole list on my phone. Yeah. And for some reason, I have a desire to somehow memorize all the presidents. Yeah. My son knows them inside and out, but just from studying them. But I did that. I remember I had, like, those scholastic books you got in fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grade about the presidents. And I, like, I just love history. I love Washington, D.C. We've been there many times. We have family that lives right outside of there. I've taken groups there to tour. I mean, Smithsonian for days. I mean, yeah. That's so I want to say one more thing, and I know we're we're a little bit long in the episode, but that's okay. Maybe, I don't know. But there's a book that I want you to read. I don't know if you'll have time. Maybe when you're on the beach or something this summer. I don't know. I just need to start setting aside time to it's, read all the time. It's a book. I say I read books. Most of the time I'm listening to them when I'm in the car. Yeah. But I say I'm reading them. Whatever. It's a book called uh, The Devil in, in the White City. It's really a history book, but it's also, it's like a fiction based on truth. So like, you know, the movie Titanic? Yeah, oh, I gotcha. So, but Those this, are good. It's called historical fiction. Okay, so it's historical fiction, okay? It's called The Devil in White City, and it's a New York Times bestseller, inter, Intertwines. It's the, the author's name is uh, Eric Larson, which is probably a very well-known author. Yeah, but, I've heard, okay. yeah, I've heard of him. He it intertwines the true tale of the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago and the cunning serial killer who used the fair to lure his victims to their death. So it was like America's first serial killer happening at the same time as the 1893 and World's Fair. which part of that's true? Just the fair Both. or the... Both. Okay. It's yeah. amazing. See, and when I read historical fiction, then I got to go read the history because I want to know what part of that was fiction. Oh, well, the only thing in this is fiction, I think, is... The stories of how he narrates these relationships of the victims. But the World's Fair, which most of it is gone. I think there's one building still standing from the 1893 World's Fair. But the things that came out of that I remember, fair. I've been to that building. The things that came out of that fair we still use today. Yeah. Oh, that's one of our, our uh, yeah, it's so cool. I told you we watched English Murder Mysteries on Acorn. Well, we're watching the Murdoch murder mystery series okay and he's a detective and he's right at that time period he's eight light late 1800s early 1900s in canada and he's all into inventions and inventing things and so there's something in every episode and and tim and i were just talking about it last night about how can you imagine when all this stuff is first coming out i'm not going to tell you all the things but there's so many i'll tell you one thing one of the one of the carpenters that was building the world's fair who had small children and he was there all the time. He built this. I mean, when you, and they're going to make a movie about it. So you'll get to see it like how Hollywood can re, rebuild it. Right. Right. He was amazed at this world's fair. His son was Walt Disney. There you go. So it's just things like that. 
See, that's why this podcast can go on forever. Because once we get the timeline up to the present, then we're going to have all these cool stories to add in. Well, we're going to say, a, "Oh, look what I learned this week." But it's going to be a great. It's going to be a great movie too. It's Martin Scorsese is making the movie. Mm. And it's a great book. Anyway, it's history, but it's got some other stuff wrapped in there. Yeah. Oh, I have to say one other thing before we Gosh, sign off. This is a long episode. It's okay. We got to we got to do this. For those of you in the Nashville area or coming to the Nashville area. On February 13th and February 20th, I'm going to be teaching an over. It's going to be the same thing twice. So you can come on the 13th or on the 20th, an overview of the entire Bible going from Genesis all the way through Revelation in about an hour and a half with visuals. And that's going to happen in Nashville at the Axis Church. That's the name of it. But if you want more info on that, reach out to us through um, email. On our website, onethingonly.org, and I can send you the details. But it's going to be on Sunday morning, once on the 13th, and again on the 20th. There we go. Well, there you have it. Uh, episode 41 is in the books. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast, brought to you by One Thing Only. For more information and related content, head over to onethingonly.org and click on History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. There you will find related content as well as a way to ask questions and make comments. We want to hear from you. You can find us on all your streaming podcast platforms. Please rate and review. Thanks again.